from WBFO in Buffalo, Toronto Public Media. This is Buffalo What's Next producer's pick. Highlights of our daily discussion on race, education, and our shared humanity. Today, oftentimes people just show up and say, like, I'm eating all these unhealthy foods, right? Like, okay. for, like I'm, you know, it's like confession time. <laughs> like, I eat whatever, you know, and I'm just letting the, you know, dietitian know up front. And they already come in thinking that everything that they're doing is wrong. We look at health in a black community with dietitian and consultant Jessica Wilson. Also, part of our mission is to bring the books to the boys by any means necessary. And we both come from an education and literacy background. We speak with the co-founders of Black Boys Read 2, Jalicia Jimenez and Rakaya Simmons. And we hear from local artist and entrepreneur, Itina Fareed Cook, who speaks freely about her early life and how it drove her to find herself through art and creativity. It all started um, from a space of, I would say, uncertainty first. Growing up, and not being certain of self. I'm Charles Gilbert. Thanks for joining us. We'll begin with a conversation about health within the Black community. Jay Moran sat down with Jessica Wilson, whose book has always been ours, rewriting the story of Black women's body, was just released at the time of recording. Speaks about what led her to writing it and the struggles the Black community faces dealing with their health. Jessica, thanks for joining us. You're so welcome. Great to be here. So you, you bring up some interesting points about here that I, first of all, haven't really heard too much about. But I will find some common ground that you brought to my attention. We look over here to our left, and we still have in here uh, uh, the victims of the uh, May 14th shooting at the uh, Topps Market. And one of the terms that we heard coming out of that, food desert, right. and then food apartheid. Mm -hmm. Honestly, something I didn't know existed mm -hmm. before May. Um, sorry to say in that regard. But what about that? That's something very familiar to you, it seems. Yeah, the food desert was more the older term. So the idea was that uh, there was just other things missing. So like a desert is barren. There's not much there. So that was how people were thinking about grocery stores in predominantly black and brown poor neighborhoods. Um, food apartheid takes into consideration that these neighborhoods are by design. So be it, you know, building permits, redlining, or just general, you know, lack of investment in those neighborhoods leads to, you know, just one grocery store or no grocery stores and reliance on corner stores for food. And you saw the news from the outside oh, yeah. looking in. So you, when you saw it, it it rang very true to you. Absolutely. Um, and somebody I was talking to in Buffalo yesterday was talking about how easy it was to target a bunch of black people. If there's only one grocery store in a neighborhood, they're going to be shopping there. Let's talk about how diet and race work together, or maybe a better way of saying is work against each other. This is a big part of your work mm -hmm. for someone who is black, talk about, and we'll get into it generally and then break down to the specific, but talk about how there are so many structures in place that really make this a difficult, very complicated topic for people of color and specifically black people. Yeah, I like the word complicated because I think people try and say there's nuance, you know, there's, you know, little bits that are kind of the same kind of, you know, familiar, but indeed it is incredibly different. So starting, um, you know, centuries ago with enslavement, um, food had always been like a big part of, you know, families, black families, um, 
you know, coming together and people making food together. Um, similarly, you know, black women were also in the house cooking for those families there, but food had always been a big, you know, part of community building in black communities. And, you know, today, traditionally, what we think of as like soul food is so penalized and pathologized um, by the quinoa and kale industrial complex. <laughs> is how I'm putting it. Industrial complex. <laughs> yeah. Uh, nice. you, you know, the avocado and olive oil, right. you know, lobbies. But um, the also a, something that I will throw in here is the same type of soul food and gentrifying neighborhoods is seeing a renaissance, you know, in, you know, let's say pork belly and collard greens. Um, so like the connections and disconnections when it comes to both soul food, what we think of as black folks food and white food um, has a very complex interaction, but the ways specifically that, you know, the, you know, health fields and medical fields are viewing soul food particularly and only when, you know, black folks are talking about what they're eating um, is, you know, negative and pathologized and what people assume is what's making black folks unhealthy, right? If you just didn't eat these foods, you know, these soul foods, if you ate quinoa and kale or whatever <laughs> it is, um, you would be healthier. So we're looking at diet um, as the only thing that makes black folks less healthy when in fact, you know, it is a whole constellation of indicators, toxic stress. You know, we look at, you know, medical studies that show like people more exposed to racism have more, you know, high blood pressure, toxic stress really impacts diabetes, heart disease. But when we go to the doctor, you know, we're told that it's us, that our behaviors are things that are, you know, the things that need to change when, in fact, you know, it's the environments that have created these things in the first place. When you speak, you, you, I just all these different ideas come to mind, things that I've heard of with people right across this table from me. Uh, and one of the more memorable things, I had a, a doctor, a medical doctor, mm -hmm. and a Ph.D. candidate sitting in these two chairs right across from me mm -hmm. telling me about how stressful mm. it is to be a black person. Yeah. And that, and it's it opened up a whole mm -hmm. different perception because here are people who are above above the norm in terms of success, education, everything, yeah. and yet they mm -hmm. feel individual stress simply because of their color. Right, when walking out the door. And so a lot of these, you know, my field is also eating disorders, and a lot of these, like, individual solutions to how we feel about our body or stress is to, like, think ourselves into, you know, feeling positive about our bodies or about our environment. But we still have to walk out the door, you know? Like, it doesn't matter, you know, all of my, you know, self-care or the stuff that I am doing when I still have to go out and, you know, interact in these environments. So, yeah, people, you know, are creating these individual solutions to societal and structural problems and really not taking into account the full person and everything that they have going on. And stress leads to choices when it comes to diet. It also leads to negative impacts mm -hmm. on your metabolism and, and just the way you basically go about your business. Right. So in food access as well. So looking at those environments, um, people in poverty often go in waves of having, you know, food at certain times of the week or certain times of the month or no food. And right, those impacts that it has on, you know, appetite, but just body weight. It's really protective for folks who don't have enough access to food to be able to hold on and store 
a bunch of food. And so we see in folks who, you know, don't have consistent access to food, the likelihood that their bodies are just going to, you know, be larger, be, you know, if we're going to call it overweight, overweight. Um, And nothing like that is factored into, you know, an experience when I walk into a doctor's office. We don't look at all those historical, you know, traumas and stresses. So you as a dietitian, as you address this, how do you address it? I guess that, because uh-huh. it sounds like you're not getting a lot of help necessarily from somebody's primary oh, care. Oh, yeah. No. Uh, somebody <laughs> in the emergency room, wherever, mm-hmm. somebody might be getting some sort of care. So how do you then try to help people walk through this? Yeah. Um, unlike, you know, the people who will talk to folks and just tell them to eat less salt or you know, eat less saturated fat or the simple answers. I always make sure to let people know that the ways that their bodies are showing up is not their fault, right? It's not like some moral or personal failing, which is so often the narrative for folks, but like the ways and the stuff that is happening in your body, the family history is something that we never look at when it comes to, well, something that a lot of people tend to, you know, disregard when it comes to body size and diabetes and other things. Um, the way that that is pathologized, I try and talk about that first. So, you know, you're in this office with me. I just want to let you know that I don't blame you for any of this, that none of this, none of this is your fault. So knowing that, like, and hopefully creating some ease because already people's, you know, defenses are up, like going to this dietitian that they feel are going to be the food police and tell them everything <laughs> right. they're doing. Yeah, wrong. So if we're not doing that, like, how can I help you? You know, for some people, you know, they're, they think they're just going to be told to eat differently. But oftentimes for me, it's like, how can we get you food in the first place before I tell you, you know, which foods are, quote, healthy and unhealthy? Yeah, actually, just before we, we jumped in here, I was talking to Charles uh, Gilbert, our producer, and, you know, he um, grew up in the neighborhood right around the, the, the tops over on the east side of Buffalo. And he brought that up, how, you know, there just aren't, you know, you know, you're not walking down the street and seeing Whole Foods. You're not down, right. you know, you're seeing, a, you know, Panera Bread or whatever <laughs> type of place that might have, quote unquote, healthier options. Right. It's just not there for you. Mm-hmm. So, again, to that, the the problem is there for an individual. How do we help these individuals find a better way? giving more options so there should not just be one grocery store um in a neighborhood if i am walking you know to a bus or to school you know and i have to stop and get food like how can we have more options available to folks um yeah so ending food apartheid would be a great step uh, but also looking at income inequality and why these things are happening. So why can I, you know, do I have to rely on food assistance, food pantries, rather than just being able to go to a grocery store and buy what my family needs? So I'm going in cycles of the types of food that I eat or I'm reliant on somebody else for, say, like, say fruits and vegetables. And, of course, when we're looking at food, there is food that is cheaper, than others, right? Produce is expensive. It spoils also. People have the perception that frozen vegetables, which are fine, are um, unhealthy because of society and what, you know, we've been told about foods. So how can we just make it easier for people and environments that support the ways that people would prefer to be eating? And when you were talking about um, food assistance, it brought to mind a conversation we had before we went on the air about your practice in mm. San Francisco, mm-hmm. 
and the people that you're trying to assist and help through some very difficult issues and just that, that they may not have any food right. for a given day mm-hmm. or whatever the case may be. I know you have found some, help people find some solutions to that, but it really, it leads to all sorts of other issues yeah. when you don't have that. I mean, it seems mm-hmm. obvious, but from a dietitian standpoint, you're looking at a person's overall health and how what they eat impacts them. Mm-hmm. So talk me through what you see and hopefully, you know, what kind of, if I can use the word solutions, maybe that's not the right word. It might be a little too grand to use, but mm-hmm. how you, you you go about this, what, what somebody who leaves you when, uh, when you've talked to them, what they might be going to, to do. Sure. So oftentimes people just show up and, and say, like, I'm eating all these unhealthy foods, right? Like, okay. for, like I'm, you know, it's like confession time. <laughs> like, <laughs> I eat whatever, you know, and I'm just letting the, you know, dietitian know up front. And they already come in thinking that everything that they're doing is wrong. Um, and so when folks are only eating one meal a day, it could be to, you know, access or disability, you know, and just the capacity to go out and get groceries or whatever it is. Um, so we talk about how to or what my, you know, goals are for this person is to eat more food. And if money is the problem, right, I am saying things like, OK, how can we get you even like ramen noodles and how can we add tuna or canned chicken or frozen vegetables to those things? And people will be like, I shouldn't eat noodles. I'm like, you only eating one meal is really what I'm concerned about here. And I know that you're trying to buy, quote, healthy foods and spending more money on these things. But you know, if you don't get enough calories, if you don't get enough protein, if you don't get enough nutrients, like that is not going to put you in the direction that you're hoping to go. So a lot of it is like calories and less expensive items, um, especially for, you know, folks who aren't able to get to all these free food resources. So how can I help in a way, you know, that makes sure that they're just getting enough food? You found your way into the uh, field of, of, of being a dietitian. Mm-hmm. It's also interesting when you started going into this field, mm-hmm. how many other black people did you find inside the <laughs> Zero. field? Zero. We say I met <laughs> a, di- a black dietitian. You know, the first time I like met and connected with a black dietitian was 2020, which is wild. I was, you know, went to undergrad in California, internship in grad school in Oregon. Never ever did I ever find another black dietitian. What uh, What do you attribute that to? Now that you have some time to to reflect. Um, I wonder if it has to do with like our experiences with black folks experiences at doctors and at dietitians where we're just told that everything is wrong and we're doing everything wrong. Um, so like that would not make someone want to go into the field. I'd be honest, you know, when I say that I went into the field initially to try and fix people's bodies because I got so much positive feedback for that. So that I, you know, definitely the wrong reasons, um, but, you know, I definitely attribute it to, like, it being a very thin white lady field, which was my experience then, and just folks not seeing themselves, you know, as having that as an option. Is that, when you, you, know, when you said, that, you know, the whatever, whatever a perfect person should look like mm-hmm. from a diet standpoint, yeah. when you were a child, what did that person look like? Oh, Can definitely you- a thin white girl, for sure. Um yeah, simply. A thin white girl. Yeah. Um, so you, you go into this field, and it, did you have a sense 
of the race racial implications of this once you went into the field? Sure. So uh, even in my education, I say that I was taught what they should, you know, what they, what they black folks. Yeah, that's folks, an interesting. Yeah, expand on that. Like yeah. They, when it, you, yeah, they the, black folks, they Latino folks, they, you know, Indian folks, and all of us were eating basically too much carbs, but in one form or another, you know, um, Asian folks, South Asian folks were eating rice, which is bad, so don't do that. Hmm. Um, Latino folks were, oh my goodness, having tortillas with a meal? Bad. You know, black folks, you know, soul food, whatever that is intended to mean. Um, and, you know, just a bunch of high salt stuff, which is just bad. Um, so, yeah, we were told what they ate, um, which was inherently pathologizing. Like, I'm sitting there, you don't see me in this classroom. Or, you know, all the heads swivel to, like, the Asian person in the room, the black person in the room when we're talking about how unhealthy, you know, we are or they are. You have uh, written a book, It's Always Been Ours. Yes. Rewriting the story of black women's bodies. Mm -hmm. What about that title? What made you choose that title? It was like one of the original ones just thrown out there. I think we had like five general titles because the book is pretty complex. I mean, we're talking about bodies. So which was really, you know, would speak or could speak to all of the things that were happening in the book. And, you know, since then we've pointed out like, that so many things have already been ours, but they've just been pathologized or problematized. You know, our joy has been ours. You know, the, our cultural foods have always been ours. Our bodies really have been ours, but society has written these stories about our bodies that, you know, make them seem like a problem. So, like, how can we recognize that none of the things that are said about us, you know, are our fault or ours to own, but really these things have always been ours. And you didn't want to write this book initially. Oh, no, I sure did not. That sounded like a lot of work. I was asked multiple (laughs) times by the same person uh, who, you know, was telling me that this book would be really important. Um, And I said, you know. That sounds like a lot of work. And she said, but the people who can't access, you know, black dietitians or culturally competent dietitians, you know, can access this book. So, you know, you can think about this book for them. And then I really did start, you know, changing and thinking about how to reach the most people rather than just one on one. And uh, it's been brought to my attention by people a lot smarter than me that writing is thinking. (laughs) So and and so while you're writing this book. Mm What came to you? Were there realizations for you that, Mm -hmm. wow, I'm I'm seeing this, I'm seeing new elements of a field that I've obviously have a keen interest in, but things that that emerged for you Mm -hmm. that were new insights? The more so myself and my experience, I was quite surprised. Um, So the first section of the book, I talk about ways that black women in society try to survive all of these, you know, situations um, and narratives about us. And I write about uh, respectability, restriction, and resilience. And it was really in the resilience chapter. I was just read, like writing some examples of what black women have to go through in the sure. workplace, read it back and said, oh my goodness, if somebody had told me that I would be devastated for them. And I just like had brushed it off as something, you know, that we can't you know, speak about or express concerns about because we're already considered to be too much in a workplace. And so that was actually in my profession. You know, it was in, you know, coordinated treatment teams where, you know, me advocating for students or addressing, you know, race in the room. um, That's where, you know, a lot of negative 
you know, feedback or pushback came from. And so I was always navigating, you know, that as a black dietitian among, you know, white treatment team members who were treating people with eating disorders. And I was like, hey, these things are important. We need to talk about size. We need to talk about race. And they're like, "Mm, no, no, that's really not what this is about. Jessica, you even said when you were younger, you had that image in your mind. It was there Mm -hmm. of the perfect body as a skinny white woman. Mm -hmm. And I was going to ask what should be the ideal image for a black woman, a real thing. But at the same time, is it maybe just that there shouldn't be any image at all? That, that that's not something that any of us should have. Right. So it's very big, but it's, you know, well documented that our body size has very little to do you know, with our health outcomes, it's more all of this environmental stuff. You can look up adverse childhood events and just how that stress, you know, really impacts, you know, our health. And, you know, I often also see like thin people, thin white folks who don't get the care they needed because their doctors don't believe that they, you know, have sleep apnea, for example, or even, you know, have, you know, uh, I've seen folks not believed for having cancer until it was, you know, late stage in both larger folks and smaller folks. So larger folks, you know, they're always told to lose weight first, Hmm. but they have cancer. Um, A student of mine had a parent die because of the, you know, he needed to lose that 50 pounds before he was taken seriously. So like this impacts all of us. That was, you know, a white student. So it really impacts all of us when we decide what health looks like and we decide, you know, whether or not it's, you know, your weight that's the problem that happens all the time. Um, Or, you know, how, you know, thinner folks are, you know, not believed also for some of the stuff that they have. So when it comes to this is a long way to get around to what, what health looks like. Yeah. And we think you know, in society and we're reinforced as, you know, healthy looks thin, it looks fit, it looks upper or middle class. Um, because if you, you know, look poor, you're inherently also decided to not be healthy. Um, so all of these uh, examples are reasons that, you know, black women, you know, we will dress up to go to the doctors versus, you know, a lot of my white clients would just come in in their pajamas, hmm. honestly, as a college student, which, you know, I think is fine. But okay. like that would not happen. That doesn't happen a lot for, you know, my black and brown, you know, friends. and Because of the way they think they would be seen or perceived. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, we, you know, research more of, you know, medical lingo so we can appear that we know what we're talking about at the doctor's office. So yeah, what health looks like is still, you know, thin, white, upper middle class. And it's not true. So what as a health is really a social construction. So how can we, yes, start to dismantle that? And of course that's very large because that's in medical school and everything. But, you know, as a society, how can we stop policing people for, you know, their health, their weight, their food choices, and really look at the structural issues that have impact how we think about these things. The thing that I hope people take away from the book is that your body is not that problem that you're told to be. So if, you know, because that results in like shame and blame and all these other things that are going on that just increase toxic stress. So if you know that your body is not a problem to be solved, like then what does that release to you when you're able to look at, you know, how you're interacting in the world? WBFO's Jay Morant. This is Buffalo What's Next Producers Pick, a second chance to hear important interviews on race, culture, and more. 
Up next, Thomas O'Neill White with Black Boys Read 2 co-founders Jalicia Jimenez and Rakaya Simmons address the large disparity in literacy achievement by getting books in children's hands in Erie and Niagara County. So talk to us about the core goal of Black Boys Read 2, addressing the disparity in literary achievement among African-American boys. We, our mission is to have books available for both boys and girls with role models and protagonists that look like them, that are written by authors, that come from where they come from. Um, and we think that is the first step. Um, part of our mission is to bring books to the boys by any means necessary. And we both come from an education and literacy background. And we kind of noticed not only with the quantitative data, but qualitatively in our classrooms that boys were less likely to get up and go reach for a book intrinsically. So that was something we really wanted to address hands-on. And that, that hands-on, that, that disruption of that disparity, you know, um, you guys are, you mentioned that you are educators, right? Rakaya, you're a fifth grade teacher? Yes, I um, teach fifth grade at Charter School of Inquiry here in Buffalo. And Jalicia, you are a community schools navigator uh, for Say Yes Buffalo. Yeah, so, yes. So literacy and education is near to dear, near and dear to both of you. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, also, Say Yes Buffalo, um, Dave Rust, big shout out to him. Yeah, he's the best. <laughs> um, yeah, so just talk a little bit about disrupting that disparity and, and just getting these getting these black boys to read a little bit more. Yeah, um, we originally we started with just placing bookshelves in barbershops. We started with three um, a little bit, almost a year ago, March 2nd of 2022, we launched with three barbershop bookshelves. Um, now we are up to 12 across Erie and Niagara County. And our newest piece is our barbershop book clubs. Um, we just finished our second series. Um, in this past month, and we'll be doing our third series in March. One thing we kind of talk about is the privilege that we have to focus on the joyous aspects of disrupting the systemic racism and problems that plague our education system. And um, really, it's been just such a pleasure to have these young men and mentors and boys come and join us and ground some of that radicalism um, and reading and enjoying each other's company. So getting into these barbershops, what does that look like? You know, do you do you say, hey, you know, we want to do this club here in these barbershops. You're at you started at three different barbershops. Yes. In in Erie and Niagara counties. Right. So what is it? What does a day look like coming into a barbershop and doing these programs? Well, our first three barbershops, uh, we knew the barbers personally, so that was really an easy transition. Um, But it's really just reaching out and saying, hey, we have this mission. Um, We have a bookshelf. Uh, We put 50 to 75 books on each bookshelf, and it really doesn't require much of a heavy lift from the barbers. They just have to make sure that the books are there when we come back uh, quarterly to switch them out. Um, sometimes we do have some conversations about the demographics and the type of clientele that they have so that we can cater our bookshelves to meet the needs of that community. Um, so we haven't had any pushback, really. Um, we were welcomed with open arms 
and we still are looking to place more barbershop bookshelves across the city. I think we've also been really pleasantly surprised with how involved all the barbers want to get in our programming. They're like really gung-ho about it. A lot of them go above and beyond and reach into their own pockets to really um, just make this experience the best that they can. Wow, that yeah. that is that is great. You know, more books in barbershops, just, you know, I would love to come in to a barbershop if I've got a long wait on like a Saturday and just pick up a book and start reading. So I think there should be more of that uh, uh, in this area. Are, are either of you concerned with what is happening with, with book banning in other parts of the country? I know we like to say, you know, never happening in New York, uh, but given the work you both do, this has to be disconcerting. Yeah, I come from a library sciences background, and that was a big conversation in my classes and in my practice was really considering the consequences of censoring books and sort of like what that means for the next generation of readers, especially as a children's librarian. So, I mean, I think it's it's definitely concerning. It's silencing, it's erasing part of history that um, needs to be talked about. It's kind of silencing large groups of people that matter and have a presence all mm-hmm. over the place. So, yeah, it's not something that we do with our bookshelves. In right. fact, we <laughs> are very provocative and intentional about the titles that we curate um, and put on our shelves. Anything, Rakaya, about book banning? Um, no, I don't. I don't think so. I think Jaleesa really covered it. We um, there was a need that we saw with having lists of diverse books, um, so we do have that included on our website. You can go online, and we update it regularly um, for anyone who's looking for any diverse or culturally relevant books. It's available there. You're listening to Buffalo. What's next? I'm Thomas O'Neill White, and we are talking literacy with Rakaya Simmons and Jalicia Jimenez, co-founders of Black Boys Read 2. Can we go around the booth and state our favorite authors? Mm. That's tough. It is tough. <laughs> um, I, ooh, I like Nick Stone. Um, shout out to Nick Stone. <laughs> um, I think uh, her work is just... Um, it mixes that joy, but also allows for young boys and girls and even just adults be, to be able to speak about things that are happening in their community in a real way. Um, so hopefully we'll be able to have a Nick Stone title in one of our upcoming book clubs. Excellent. Jalicia. I'm struggling, especially as a librarian. I think <laughs> ethically I can't pick a favorite author. <laughs> shout out all the local authors that we've worked with and shine a spotlight on some of their names Laguan Rogers um, Cara Oliver Perez we just did an event with her um, if you look on our Instagram you please go look through and support these amazing local children's authors that are writing some really powerful titles um, I'm going to go with the old white man. Uh, <laughs> J.R. Tolkien is my favorite author. Got Classic. tattoos oh, wow. and stuff. <laughs> and, um, he's just been uh, with me since I was probably eight or nine years old, and, and I'm now 40, and, and he's still right with me. Mm. So, um, Can we talk a little bit more about the barbershop program? Um, I know you guys are 
kind of like out of season, right? When are you guys going to be back? We have our next round of our barbershop book club starting on March 8th. So it's open to everyone. Um, we'll be at the barbershop fade and full. We really welcome families to come. I think it's a really fun thing for parents to do with their kids or caregivers to do with their kids um, Wednesday evenings at 5 p.m. Yes, 5 to 6. Yep. Excellent. And you also have other literary, literary pop-up events. Yeah, this past summer we did um, some of a summer series uh, where we partnered with Absolute Health and Wellness downtown, um, and we partnered health and wellness, so sports and uh, yoga and meditation with reading. And so um, it was wonderful to be able to have families come out and participate in something a little active. Um, our dodgeball tournament was very popular. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm waiting for, you know, a, a rematch. <laughs> um, and then also being able to um, come together around a book that was related to the theme. Um, so that was something that we're looking forward to doing something similar this summer as well. Uh, on your website, uh, you mentioned you've got um, a pretty long list of uh, picture books, chapter books, poetry, nonfiction. Um, is there a particular book from that list uh, you like that you would recommend to a second grader or a middle schooler? One thing that we found really interesting was um, – the book that we just read together in our barbershop book club by Remy Blackwood, Race to Future Mountain. Um, it was, I think it's marketed more so to like that 8 to 12 age range, but because of the story and the characters, participants of all ages could really relate to the characters that we were reading about. And so I think that sometimes books can really transcend age um, especially when you're building community around them. How do you choose the books? For the book club or just... Yeah, for the book club. Um, well, we do like to try to find authors that follow us on social media. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, and we came across uh, the story that we just read, uh, Future Hero, Race to Fire Mountain. Um, we actually got the recommendation from Meg at Alice Ever After Books um, on Parkside. Yes. Right? yes. Um, that story it is centered around a young boy who goes to a barber shop that's owned by his cousin, and there's a secret portal in the back. In the back, and he finds out that he is a king or a prince from um, this. Like a royal bloodline. Mm. Of, of like a futuristic. Very Wakanda-esque. Yes. Nice. And we saw that there was the connection with the barbershop, and we were going to be doing the book club in a barbershop, so it just it worked out well. And it was wonderful because uh, we the author follows us on social media, and um, it's an actual author team, so there's um, a few people who write together under the name right. uh, Remy Blackwood, mm-hmm. and they're based out of the UK, and they actually zoomed in to talk to our group, um, which was wonderful because it was 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night in Their the UK. Yeah. <laughs> and um, it was wonderful to have the students be able to, or the kids and participants, mm-hmm. I'm in my teacher mode, students, mm-hmm. um, the, the participants to be able to read the story and then also be able to talk to that author and ask questions about the process. Um, 
And we're looking to do that again with the next story since we're going to be reading the second book in the series in March. Is that how you measure effectiveness? Um, you know, with with you know talking to an author and, and you've got your group and they're asking questions about the books. Um, is that is that one method you uh, measure? Like you know how how effective you are doing with your work? Are there any other methods that you look at? Absolutely, um, that is part of it. Um, but also we do do our normal kind of surveys. Um, everyone participates in a survey after each session, and then we're able to come together as a group and decide what's working, what isn't working. Um, we really just want to make sure that the program is giving our community what they need, um, even if it's not what we envisioned in the beginning. Mm -hmm. um, but it's always evolving. Yeah, and I think it's like one measure of success and engagement is return. So we have a lot of familiar faces that come back to our events. And that really, to me, shows that we are building community and we are curating like a welcoming space for mm -hmm. people to come back and bring their family members and friends to. Moving along into 2023. What is what does that look like? What uh what events do you have coming up expanding the barbershop series? Could you could you be moving into salons as well? <laughs> We're talking about taking our barbershop bookshelf program into other cities, um, expanding out of Buffalo. So if you're listening and you're interested and you've got a shop, we'd love to place one. Yes. Um I think we've really found our niche and um, some grounding in our book club series so I think we've talked a lot about expanding that as well and just you know um to be clear the group is called black boys read too but this is very much family oriented absolutely yes and this is one question I like to ask all my guests I mean it's a broad question um but like you know I interview people from all different walks of life, um, especially the ones based locally. So, what, um, what does Buffalo need from your, from Rakaya, from your vantage point, Julicia, from your vantage point? What does Buffalo need? Ooh, I think, um, as an outsider looking in, so I'm a transplant from New York City, mm. but I feel very at home in Buffalo. And I feel inspired by the creatives and talent that the city has to offer. I think we need more focus, funding, and opportunity for those creatives to thrive and be seen and heard. Yeah, I would agree. I think that the community um, is very supportive. Yes. Um, even when we first launched, we received a lot of support locally. Um, I think that we as a community just need to continue that support. So um, we, when things happen, we get very excited and we support, and then it starts to die down. Right. Um, it's I the think, Buffalo way. Yeah. <laughs> so I think if we can figure that out as a community and continue to stay involved and um, yeah, stay involved with the missions and the creatives and the organizations that we get so excited about I, I think that the sky's the limit I think Buffalo can really make even bigger name for themselves yeah it feels like there's so much like 
like kinetic energy here <laughs> and then mm-hmm. the momentum sometimes can just sort of yeah but the ta- yes. but the talent is always here yes. it's, it's going to remain here it's just getting that talent out and being able to you know let them do what they do right absolutely right black boys read two co-founders jaleesia jimenez and rakaya simmons with thomas O'Neill white and we'll close the program today with Buffalo artist and entrepreneur Itina Fareed Cook, who speaks freely about her early life and how it drove her to find herself through art and creativity and her Get Focus production company. On Buffalo What's Next, uh, back at Buffalo Arts Studio. And today we are talking with Itina Fareed Cook. And uh, we have a lot to talk about. First and foremost, uh, I want to uh, point out that uh, Itina's company is Get Focused Productions. We're going to talk a lot about that as we move through here, but there's a, a lot of different reasons why I wanted to get in touch with you because Itina, you grew up here in Buffalo, you're a Buffalo artist and you are in a lot of different things, music, film, all sorts of different elements. Just talk about how that all started. It all started um, from a space of, I would say, uncertainty first growing up and not being certain of self but then getting opportunities that added value to who I am Um, growing up in foster care um, having certain circumstances with labels failure to thrive um, diagnosed emotionally handicapped and then getting opportunities to have or develop the language that I feel was in me um, that just had to be, um, you know, pulled out. But I think it, it, it started there. It started as a young person going through the experiences that I went through and then just having this urge for more. Like, life can't be about being a failure to thrive, it has to be yeah. more. Yeah, you know? I, the, the failure to thrive, you have that yeah. on your on your website, as a matter of yes. fact. It's all part of uh, about who you are. Yeah. Where does that, I mean, was that somebody somebody said that to mm-hmm. you? Is it just kind of how you took what everybody yeah. around you was, was, was telling you? So, I was, <laughs> I'll date myself, I guess. I was born <laughs> in the 80s. <laughs> um, and and I, I was in my uh, late 20s when in the oh 80s. So goodness, continue, yeah, sorry. All right, well, hey, um, you know what? I th- I think that during that time frame, the foster care system developed these titles and labels that they felt made the most sense based off of circumstances. My biological mother, Laura Parker, had a an issue, substance abuse, and um, for whatever reason, she filled whatever void that was in her life with this substance abuse, which then affected her children, and we were taken away from her. And so a lot of times when you look at numbers and and words on a piece of paper and you're looking at children, um, you're trying to best identify what will be shaped from their circumstance. So if it was said that my, my mother was on drugs while I was in her womb, then you're deemed as um, back then they called it a crack baby, unfortunate. Mm. Unfortunately, that's not a label that anyone would like. That's nothing that I think they use in, in today's terms. Right. But then that's kind of what they kind of you know created. Um, yeah. So when you have that, right. and you look at those circumstances, most people, 
you know, intellectuals or what have you and counselors and doctors, they assume that, okay, because of this, you're gonna have issues. This child is gonna have issues because of their inability to X, Y, and Z. And because her mother is this way, then she's going to end up like this. So she will be a failure to thrive due to being, you know, in the womb while drugs, you know, are being intaken by her mother. She's going to be a failure to thrive because she's has these certain things that are going on. Her mother's not there. Um, you're placed in a foster care. You will not have an ability to kind of express yourself and your emotions are going to be out of order or what have you. Now, that doesn't feel good and doesn't sound good, but to most, you would think, yeah, this this is typically what happens, you know? Sure. Statistics show that most children who are in these circumstances will end up like this. The issue is, I don't believe that people, like maybe in those moments, they underestimated the power of community, they underestimated the power of mentorship, they underestimated the power and the value in education and the arts in collaboration with that. Because when I was exposed to that, failure to thrive and emotionally handicapped faded away. That's interesting. And if we could just maybe go back to best you understand, Absolutely. like you said, I'll, I'll use the term and I'll try not to get back to it, but like a crack baby. Was there, did you have any type of physical, mental, emotional connection, anything that, that, that was something that you had to overcome or was it the label? that you felt like you had to overcome? I feel like the label and perhaps some of the circumstances that were happening surrounding my upbringing, if you will, that added to that, um, that feeling of this must be true. I continuously got into trouble and always questioned myself, which is the same question for every adult, most adults that were around during that time. What is wrong with you? Hmm. And so that question would, you know, fly within my mind often. What is wrong with me? Something must be wrong with me. I'm not normal because I can't sit still or because when I am in contact with authority, I have a problem, you know? So I must be a problem, there must be a problem and no one can solve it, not even myself. At a young age, this is what was going on in my mind. Mm. And, you know, that's going to lead to, you know, suicidal thoughts. You know, that's going to lead to, you know, this low self-esteem or looking in the mirror and not feeling like I want to exist. And, you know, that's the narrative that I grew up with, you know, as a child, as a little girl. Was there a time or th that you can recall that it went from being what is wrong with me to what's right with me. Or, I, I mean, it's, right. it, it seems like that, yes. that, that, that switched for you. You know, there was a couple of moments um, that I remember. There's a lot of moments, but sure. one in particular was in my teens when I was, well, it's, it's so many, but this particular one, when I went through a program at SEPA Gallery, um, Lauren Tent was the educator um, or the education director um, during that program and so we were capturing images with disposable cameras and um, going through the development process with our images and I took this picture 
the thing about the photo is that I put thought into it. You know, this is the first time I said, okay, you know, a creatively, like not kind of strategically planning this photo. And I put my mind, I'm like, I wanna do this. I like how the shadows are and I put my all into it. And when I developed that photo, Lauren looked at it and said, this is really good. Like you're really good at this. And she decided to take that photo and use it for promotional purposes for the organization. That's not the first moment, but that's I'll a, never forget a, that moment. It's a powerful moment for sure. Because what it did to me was, maybe I'm not a failure to thrive. What is this? Maybe I do, maybe there's something that I can do. Maybe I'm good at something, you know? And it was a lot of different moments where it was like, grabbing hold to this kind of, this hope. Like, maybe what they said was not true. Maybe there's something more. And, and I pursued that something more. I constantly pursued that something more. And I wanted more. And then it became, I wanted more just because I wanted more to I wanted more for myself. And then it became, I wanted more for my community. It became, I wanted more for the young people that surrounded me. I wanted more for my neighborhood. And just, it just evolved into this, like, I'm gonna get more, you know? And, and sh you know, shame on, you know, these labels that they place on, on young people. Um, because it, 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 you're holding them back. Why say failure to thrive? Why not say there's possibilities? If we do X, Y, and Z, there are possibilities for this young person. Why close the door? Failure to thrive is a door closed, you know? And thank God that I failed at trying to take my life. Mm -hmm. I was a failure to thrive in that circumstance but not a failure to thrive within my life and the, and the goals and achievements and um, accomplishments and what have you, you know? I, Tina, you're, you're, you're taking me down a wormhole here that I don't want to stop on, but I do want to, yes. I, I, yes. I, I, I most certainly want to get into Get Focus Production. Mm -hmm. You know, you read your website and now just mm -hmm. this time that we're sitting here together, you can see that so much of what you do and Get Focused mm -hmm. comes from, from this. But let's, I'll let you give us a generalization mm -hmm. of Get Focused. And I want to also point people out to the website and spell it because it's Get Focused, but Focused is spelled with a K. Yes. Get Focused Productions. Give me an overview and then we'll kind of start breaking things down a little bit. Okay. Get Focused is a creative arts, media arts company that captures human first stories, teach emerging artists how to utilize uh, their artistic abilities to tell stories, not only emerging artists, but other organizations. And then we give back through, you know, showcasing videos on uh, different individuals within the community, just highlighting uh, community leaders or what have you. So in a nutshell, we capture, teach, and give back. Capturing stories, teaching others how to tell those stories in different ways, and giving back to the community. And we should also uh, mention, because I think it's very significant, that you are also a recording artist. Yes. You go by AI, the anomaly. Yes. Okay. Where, where does that name, <laughs> that, that label, <laughs> come from? So AI is the first two letters of my name. Right. 
uh, when trying to develop this brand for who I wanted to be as an artist, I was trying to understand like, okay, who am, who am I? What am I trying to do? And so I had to really develop so that when you create a name, you don't want to sway too much far from that. When I think of my life, I am truly an anomaly. Um, anomaly is um, going against the rule. The rule of my life as, at a young age was that I would be a failure to thrive, that I would be part of the statistics. But I went against that rule or that label, and I'm outside of that. I'm, I'm living in this whole space that no one, perhaps no one would have thought that I would be in, not even myself. Right. So I'm kind of living in this space of like, I'm, I'm, I'm a weirdo, I'm a nerd, <laughs> and I'm fine with that. You know, Absolutely. I'm all of the things creative, and I'm fine to live that life in that way. I've chosen to incorporate music into this art form of storytelling as well. And, and I'm sure we'll get into it, but the latest project that I, that I worked on is Tales from the Porch. Right. And I've incorporated my music in that process. Tales from the Porch. Yes. Wow. Um, I encourage people to go, easy way to find it is YouTube and, yeah, and go to Tales from the Porch and uh, probably get, get focused focus on there as yes. well. Um, the ones I was able to look at are just absolutely beautiful. Um, I guess maybe just, uh, why don't we just maybe give an overview, let, let you yeah. overview it and then we can break it down from there. Of course. Overview for me, Tales from the Porch. Tales from the Porch is a, a constant project giving voices to the community, um, minorities, and, you know, emerging artists, organizations, it's not limited, limited to that, but um, just showcasing the community. The hope is always, everything that I do, the hope is to ignite thought and expand perspectives. So we're telling stories or allowing for uh, these individuals to tell their stories based off of their platform, their porch. The porch is this space that's not quite public and not quite private. Hmm. It's a space that you would have to be invited to in order to experience, you know. So we captured these different stories of different people within the community um, in order to just showcase and highlight what they do for their community, their hearts and their passions um, from their porch perspective. And so the one that we just did last year focused on seven black leaders. Um, it was my response to what happened at mm. Tops. Okay. You know, um, I wanted to showcase individuals that I felt were doing the work. They've been doing the work. This wasn't new just because this thing happened. They were doing work for years, and they're going to continue to do the work. Um, it also came from my pastor, Pastor Stephen Foreman Sr., who in, in uh, the congregation, he said, we must overcome evil with good, which is biblical. It's a biblical and I wanted to utilize my skill and my talent in order to showcase good. I wanted to focus on that. I didn't want to focus on the evil that occurred. Um, I wanted to focus on those individuals that were doing good. You're, you can reflect back. You're the young girl who grew up on Sherman Street, mm -hmm. and here you are right now. But you know this city. You know this city very well. What does Buffalo need? Oof. What does Buffalo need? God. Faith. That's what I'd say. The fear of God. The development of faith. The ability to see others as human. 
to have empathy, to have grace. I think not only Buffalo, but this world needs that. You can't tell me that there's not a creator with all this creativity. And if we tap in and understand what is being said or what is being taught through that creator, who, you know, in my perspective, as a God, we start to understand that, you know, all this time, all that was ever spoken about is agape love, unconditional love. When love is unconditional, I don't see you as white, black, Hispanic, or all of these titles and labels. I see you as human, I see you as me. If we can see each other as ourselves, we would move differently. If I treat you like I wanna be treated, let's think about that, right? If I treated you as you wanted to be treated, if I treated you with respect, if I treated you justly, equitably, if I listened and was active in that, if I, if I, wanted, if I seek first to understand, then to be understood, if I'm slow to anger, if I'm quick to listen, slow to speak, if I care enough about you, imagine all of us living that way. Is it complicated? Yes, because we're navigating through all of these hurdles of all of these different experiences that we had that shapes our perspective, that builds assumptions about each other, that creates these barriers and these mountains that we don't know how to push to the side and get to the end all be all that you're just as human as me. I think that's what everybody needs, right? And what's wrong with that? It's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> it's not a thing wrong with that, you know? But it's not as simple as it said. You know, it takes time. And everybody needs to just do their thing and continue to showcase humanity. And this is how I choose to showcase it. And this is how I choose to live out the dash that's between life and death. Artist and entrepreneur, Itina Faree Cook. If you missed these interviews or want more than just these highlights, a reminder that this program is a podcast. You can get it wherever you get your podcasts or the new Amplify BTPM app. And each episode is also online on demand at WBFO.org. This is WBFO and WBFO HD1 Buffalo, WOLN Olean and WUBJ Jamestown, your NPR station. This is Charles Gilbert. Thanks for listening. This is WBFO News History Bite, bringing you a peek into significant historical events for the listening area from the week of April 3rd through April 9th. I'm your host and WBFO News Program Director, Tom Barrage. A lot of historical performances and speeches happened this week. On April 5th, 2016, former President Bill Clinton gives a speech in Depew, New York, in support of Hillary Clinton's presidential campaign. April 5, 1973, Shirley Chisholm gives a speech at the University at Buffalo, and April 5, 1972, none other than Elvis Presley performs at Memorial Auditorium in Buffalo. On April 7, 1919, more than 10,000 people crammed themselves, probably unsafely, into Broadway Auditorium in Buffalo to hear a performance by opera legend Enrico Caruso. Friday, April 7, 1945, Vice President and soon-to-be President Harry S. Truman gives a speech at the Statler Hotel, now known as the Statler Tower in Buffalo, New York. And one non-performance-related happening on April 8, 1939, the Buffalo Zoo held a contest to name a new elephant. 
Peggy Donner won the contest and named the pachyderm Coco. You've been listening to the WBFO News History Bite. Discover more stories about Buffalo's past on the Buffalo History Museum's website. Learn more at buffalohistory.org. For WBFO News, I'm Tom Barich.